The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Everybody, you are listening to judging Megan with your host, Megan judge. I'm going to take my glasses off because I'm super vain. Um, so today I'm going to start with my little story, but I'm what a shocker. I'm a hot mess as usual. My hair is soaking wet. I don't know what I even did to my face because I put makeup on so quickly that I looked in the mirror and it looks like I've been crying and mascara is down my face. Um, but I, my, where I usually record, there was something wrong in the room. So I had to race downstairs. It was, I'm just a hot mess, but I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened to me yesterday. So I went to do this speaking engagement with these women in Malibu. And um, a friend of mine, her name is Denise Klein. She runs Milestones Ranch in Malibu, California. I could not love this lady more. I adore her. She does so much uh, for people that have issues with addiction and mental health. And she does a lot for the homeless crisis that we're trying to alleviate and, and get rid of in Los Angeles and all over the country. She's just one of my favorite people. So I got up early. I drove that long uh, drive from the where I live in the Manhattan Beach area to, or Manhattan Redondo Hermosa area. If you know the beaches, you know. And I got in my car and I drove and I didn't realize I was short on time. So of course I barely even brushed my hair and I probably looked awful. But anyways, I walk in this room and... I just felt like these women were my people. And when I talk about my story and I meet women that do so much to help other people, these are mainly women that, you know, uh, serve the community through helping people with eating disorders and mental health and addiction. I knew I was in the right place. So the topic of my story or when I talk to people is from surviving to thriving. So the night before I was up, and I'm going to introduce my guest in a second, 
and we were just talking about this before we were, we started recording, but I was up for hours, probably like two hours and I couldn't go back to sleep and which happens to me often in my old age lately. And I started thinking, I sound like such an obnoxious person going from surviving to thriving. I'm so great. Look at me. There's nothing more annoying to me that when I go on social media and I see a speaker or a podcaster or somebody, I, I, I think everybody has a great message, but I don't like when people try to put their lives and how they're so great on other people. So when I say from surviving to thriving, which is kind of the theme, it's all over my website. It really just means I picked my freaking self up by my bootstraps. I'm still here. Yes, I'm very open about the fact that I was suicidal and I am a trauma survivor. And I went through literal hell to get to where I am today. And I'm surviving and I'm thriving because I'm still here. So that's really my message when I talk to people or I talk to my listeners or Hopefully I'm just meeting Julie today. She can relate to that. It's that we're still here. Nobody's better than anybody else. I just want you to know that. I'm, I, I hope my listeners will always understand that I don't think I'm any better than anyone else. In fact, I'm one of the most heavily flawed people on the planet. I can't stand the Karens. I'll tell you about that later, Julie, this, this awful group of women. Um, one of them was wearing jeggings the other day. I almost had to chase her down the street and be like, honey, jeggings are not in anymore. Take them off your body. So my listeners know I am very authentic. I am who I am. I'm not perfect. I'm no saint, but I'm still here. And so when I do this every week and I talk to you all and I introduce like badass guests, like my guests that I'm about to talk to you, I want you to know we're all a work in progress. Nobody's better than anyone else. Like my dad used to say, you treat the valet, you treat the waiters, you treat people. Everybody should be treated the same. We, I don't always do the best job of being kind to people, but I know at the end of my life, I'm hoping I'm doing an okay job and I can at least have a shot of making it up to see my, my dad, my sister, Julie, all the people I've lost. We've all been put here for a reason and we all deserve acceptance. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. I'm a trauma survivor from a really young age, and I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD in the past few years. I've been surrounded by death and abuse much of my life. I've been dragged through the mud and have been to the point of not wanting to go on anymore. Through my interviews with other survivors, I've learned that there is a way out. From recovering to surviving and thriving, we all have the strength to come out the other side. You are listening to Judging Megan. Everyone, I want to introduce Julie Lewis. Julie is a speaker, an author, and a health advocate. I am so honored to have Julie come on today. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> any like any had obstacles getting here today. I know. So. I know. We were both, Yay, Julie, we told, made it. <laughs> we made it. We both were talking about... Um, before I started, she said she didn't sleep last night. I was like, join the club. That's my new life. Um, but I want to tell you when I read your bio, how inspired I was by you and how important I think your story is because there's such a, um, there's such a cloud or a misunderstanding of people that were diagnosed, whether it be, um, LGBTQ plus 
uh, members with AIDS or just somebody that, you know, is not or any, all of the people that have carried this kind of cross with them of being diagnosed with AIDS and gone through the different struggles throughout the years. It's so refreshing to have somebody come on and talk about where we are today, what they went through, what that was like, especially being a woman. I can't imagine what you've gone through. So I just want you to know before we get into your story, how very brave I think you are and how um, the world needs this, because I think that there was so much, there's so much lack of knowledge when it comes to this disease, even to this day, that it's important that your story gets out there. So thank you again. Well, um, you know, like you, like, I don't feel like I'm big hero or anything. I think you wake up and you just decide to either live that day and make the most of it or you, you know, stay home and be depressed. So it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, people are, are always saying, oh, you're so amazing. And I'm like, well, um, it's not like I wouldn't give it all up to be a healthy person my whole life. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and at some point, it's like you get given these things in life and you don't have a lot of options. Um, you know, it's not, you don't have an option to not, you know, to not have depression or to not, you know, have HIV or whatever your struggle is. It's your life and we all have something. So um, I don't think we're, you know, necessarily like better than anyone else because everyone, if you get to know them, has some struggle. And I just think that it's just a mind over matter thing every freaking day. It's like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get dressed and then I'm going to, you know, like you just have to choose these things or, um, or life can just go down a rabbit hole real fast. It's true. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah. what's the other option? You either exactly. stay here and you do something that's going to matter and maybe affect somebody else's life and sharing, share your story. So you kind of pay it forward, if you will. So there's somebody out there that could be touched by your story. Maybe one of my listeners or whoever you're talking to, these things happen to us. I don't know what you think, but for a reason, I hate when people, I know that people get mad when they're like, everything happens for a reason, but why? why did things happen? <laughs> you know, it's gotta be, there has to be some reason behind why things happen. So let's start with kind of where you're from. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, right now I'm living in Seattle. I've been here 20 years. Um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm older than you, so I'm not a young person either. And so I've lived in many places. Um, most of, uh, so I just wrote, wrote, my memoir called Still Positive, and most of that story um, takes place in a, in a eastern Washington in a town called Spokane, which is really close to Idaho border. Um, so I was having kind of a regular life. Um, you know, I had three kids and great husband, and we were cul-de-sac people, you know, and I you know, life, you know, when you're young, you kind of have an idea of your life. And mm -hmm. I would say my life was going pretty close to how I had imagined it. And then uh, in 1990, I got a phone call from my doctor. And um, just a backstory, when my uh, daughter, my oldest daughter was born, I had a postpartum hemorrhage and I needed um, a blood transfusion. 
So that was in 1984. So this is six and a half years later. I get this phone call and my book starts. The first chapter is called The Phone Call. I mean, so it starts there. It's not my whole entire life. It's it's this story of um, HIV. So uh, the doctor starts out with, you'd better sit down so you know it's bad news. And then, um, and then he said, one of the people who gave blood has AIDS and that blood bank called me and you should probably go get tested. And then he said, this is six and a half years ago. So chances are, you know, maybe that person got infected after the blood transfusion. But I had been feeling so bad for over a year that I just knew in my head there hadn't been any good explanation. And this was like, oh, this is what it is, you know. And then, you know, probably the hardest part of the diagnosis was I had to get every single person in my family tested. Um, My... Uh, I had two kids after that, and they both had a 25 to 30% chance of getting born with HIV. Um, My daughter, who was born the day before my transfusion, um, I breastfed her, so she had a a smaller chance of being infected. And then, you know, we were pregnant, or I had three kids in four years. I mean, like, shoot me. That was just nuts. But then my husband had a vasectomy, so we never used protection in that whole entire time. So I just assumed he would be infected. Um, But miraculously, none of them were. Um, So that was the beginning of the story. And um, the town we moved to is fairly conservative. My husband was working in full-time Christian ministry. So there was just lots of attitude and opinions and fears. And in 1990, um, the stigma and discrimination was humongous. So I, my kids were two, four, and six years old, so I, I didn't want them to experience that. So for four years, we hardly told anyone. Um, was that, then, do you mind uh, me asking, was that yeah. in the, still in the thick of um, when people were afraid, you know, to swim oh, in pools and so all of afraid. that? Everybody okay. we had, you know, there's so much misinformation. Yeah. I mean, here's just the example. The first day, so my when we when we moved um, to Spokane, my daughter was in first grade, and I'm a health teacher. That's what I was, you know, I'm a high school health teacher and science teacher, and since then I've been working for the health department and some other things. But um, the school had just started HIV/AIDS education, and so they had a parent meeting, and. I had just gotten diagnosed. I was so sick on AZT, but I dragged myself out of bed and went to the school and sat in the back row. And I w- they were going to present, the school district um, was going to present like the HIV education for all grades, not just grade school. And I was super interested, uh, not only because I just got diagnosed, but I'm a health teacher, right? So I'm sitting back there and it's just going kind of normal. And... Um, you know, there's a nurse and a district administrator, and they're talking about curriculum, and this is all like could be math or science, you know. And then all of a sudden, at the end, this person raises their hand in the audience, and this guy stands up and he's like, Hi, I'm a medical doctor, and I just don't believe the findings of the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institute of Health. I think that HIV can be spread in all kinds of ways. I mean, he's like, and all these parents are just hanging on every word this doctor is saying, right? And I'm in the back row and I'm just going, 
okay, not telling any of these people I'm HIV positive. Like this is not a safe space. So that was kind of the beginning of just like being very much um, confirmed in my mind that this is not safe information. I don't want the neighbors not letting my kids play at their house because their mom has HIV. So for four years, we kept the secret. And let me tell you, keeping a secret is a family secret is almost as hard as having HIV. It's exhausting. You're lying all the time. You're making because I was so sick. When and, when uh, you say you were sick for the year prior to the mm-hmm. diagnosis, when you actually just knew, what were some of the symptoms that you started experiencing? Okay, well, um, I had extreme fatigue, like, and I'm a pretty high energy person, so that was really odd. And I go to the doctor and they go, well, you just had three little kids. Of course you're tired. You you know, blah. and I was working full time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and then I had swollen glands. I had night sweats. I, um, and you were I, young, right? You, you must've been, I got diagnosed when I was 32. Yeah. that's So, uh, I got infected when I was 25. So anyway, yeah, I, I just had all these weird symptoms, you know? And, um, I started to think maybe I had chronic fatigue syndrome because that was something that doctors didn't really, um, not all doctors thought it was a real thing back in the 90s, right? So I was trying to find some weird diagnosis that people wouldn't test for. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of surprising looking back um, because by 1990, all doctors knew that there was HIV in the blood supply. And on every one of those medical history forms, I put that I had a blood transfusion in 1984. But, you know, I wasn't a gay man. And literally that is what, or a hemophiliac. So that's, I was a, you know, a young mom with three little kids whose husband was in full-time ministry. Not what people were looking for, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but my symptoms and my history were very clearly um, something that, you know, would warrant an HIV test. So anyway. What, what, how did you feel going back? I mean, I can't even imagine being that young, having, I've, I'm a mom. I spread my kids out four years. So one's 13, now one's nine. Right. I <laughs> cannot even imagine having kids that young being diagnosed but also, how were you? You must have been so angry. How did you? What did you do when you found that out? I wasn't angry at all. Really? Um, no, I wasn't. You have to know I have a gay brother um, who uh, is also HIV positive, and mm-hmm. I didn't find out he was HIV positive until I was diagnosed. But I kind of knew he could be because all his friends were dying in the 1980s. Yeah. And um, and I asked him many times, you know, are you HIV positive? And he, he never said no. He would say, oh, don't worry about me. I'm fine. So in the back of my head, it was like I knew it was a big possibility that he had HIV. Um, so I was already kind of fully immersed in the culture and the disease and, and the communities were being severely affected um, in 1990. And then um, the other thing, I'm just a very logical thinker. And so I just started thinking, yeah, this person who had HIV gave blood, 
but chances are they did not know in 1984 mm-hmm. because I didn't know for six and a half years and I could have given blood. Um, if I had given blood between 1984 and 1980, summer of 1985, when they started testing the blood, my blood could have been in the blood supply and could have infected someone. So it just never even dawned on me to blame someone. Um, I was depressed. Um, and I think that was more about sadness than about anger. Um, and I wasn't, I, you know, I'm, I have a pretty strong faith in, um, an afterlife. So I wasn't actually that afraid of dying. I was just sad for all the things I'm going to miss, you know, like, you know, I'm with, I was given three to five years to live in 1990. And that would mean I wasn't going to see Ryan start kindergarten. So it was, it was just, um, overwhelming to look at them and, you know, and to think I'm not going to see my kids grow up. And I have a very awesome, good looking husband. So of course he's going to get remarried. And I just, I would just sit there and think my grandkids are going to be calling some other woman grandma. Like it would just, you have these weirdest things. So there was this point, it was probably about eight months after my diagnosis when I just woke up one day and I was like, I don't feel any more dead today than I did yesterday. And I think it was just a moment where I realized that waiting to die is a horrible, horrible way to live. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of dove deep into denial. I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to like focus on this until it's actually happening. And in the meantime, I'm just going to live my life and talk like I'm going to live a long time. So I would say things to my kids like, I'm going to be a great grandma to your children. And they would laugh. And I just thought to myself, thinking about it is better than nothing at all, you know, for them. Um, But at the same time, so you're trying to just have a normal life and be positive and get up and seize the day. But at the same time, I am writing like letters to my kids for their adult self. Because I realized that if I do die, they are only going to remember me like a little kid remembers their mom. They would never know the adult me. Um, So it was this weird balance of like just trying to go forward, not think about it too much, but then also sort of prepare. Um, Julie, what breaks my heart about it, too, is the fact that um, so... I, I mean, I have close friends that are HIV positive. I ha- I did an episode very early on with a dear, dear friend of mine who lost his um, partner, Eric, in, I believe, 1990 to AIDS. Um, and they were living in West Hollywood, which obviously is a very different world, but that's that was the center. So a lot of, you know, hatred towards the gay community. Um, but also he was saying they had to pretend until Eric got really sick. And what makes me so sad about your story or my friend Wayne's story and what happened to the love. I mean, he loved his partner like nobody. His story is so beautiful. But to be sick like that and to know that there's a chance that you might not be around for your children and you can't even really talk about it with your friends or your neighbors or anybody and just kind of have to fake it like that, that I, that's like 
on top of what you were already dealing with, I can't imagine the pain of that. I lost my dad when I was 13 to leukemia. And I remember him being really, really sick. And just the men, like how it it is to be sick like that and the mental uh, toll it takes on human beings. So my heart goes out to you because it was like, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for your mental health. Yeah, I did. I did strategically build a small community of support people and they were amazing. Um, Yeah, but um, yeah, those were hard years. Those first four years, not only was I the sickest, mostly from the medicine, Um, but yeah, it was, it was not, um, it was not easy. Every time I'd make a new friend, I would have to wait and try to decide, can they handle this? And, you know, like you, you have this whole period of time and then you, you know, I had to sort of one-off tell people and that was exhausting in itself because you don't want, you want to get them, give them every piece of information so they feel comfortable. And, you know, so it's really up to you to make someone feel okay about this disease. And um, anyway, it was interesting time. But the flip side of that is in 1994, um, we just, my, my oldest daughter uh, who had just had HIV ed- education asked me how my friend Mary died. And I said, she had a blood transfusion. Um, and then she got this God off, she's fifth grader. She got this god awful look on her face and she's like, Mom. And I said, What? She goes, You had a blood transfusion. And I said, I'm like, I'm like going, oh shit. And then she's like, Could you have AIDS? And I was like, Well, I could. And then she said, Do you? And I was like, Nope, don't have AIDS. And I was just like, there was nothing in me that was ready to tell yeah. my kid. But the writing was on the wall that I didn't want her to hear it from someone else. And, and to be fair, I was only HIV positive at that point. I didn't have any diagnosis. I felt like it was a, you know, a white half lie kind of thing. But anyway, um, so that after school got out, that was in May. Um, yeah, after school got out, we decided to tell all of the kids and Ryan was six, they were six, eight and 10. And, you know, if you want your, private information, uh, broadcast to the whole entire world. Just tell a six year old, you know, (laughs) you know, I told him this isn't private. I mean, this isn't like secret. This is private information and it's your information and you can share it when you want to. Cause I don't want my kids to think it was bad or they would be in trouble. So I'm at the grocery store and the lady's checking my groceries and Ryan looks at her and he looks at me and he goes, does she know you have AIDS? And I'm like, I'm like, well, she does now, huh? And the poor woman. I mean, that was like, okay, it's out there. And because I'm a teacher, and um, I think that first four years, what it did was people felt really free to tell me all, you know, because they didn't know I had HIV, to tell me all their fears and stuff. And being an educator, the first thing I knew I wanted to do was to join um, a speaker's bureau to be able to go into the schools and colleges and different places um, and teach people about the disease. Um, and I, you know, I met a lot of people like your friend. Um, I mean, our my speakers bureau, about 20 people became my really good friends. It was a very safe place. Um, 
And the whole middle part of my book is about a lot of these folks who died. And the reason um, I really wanted to put that in my book is that, like you said, um, many of them, their families did not want people to know. If you Google these people, there's no account that they ever were here because nobody had a funeral. Nobody mm -hmm. had an obituary. I mean, there was a couple people, but hardly anyone. So it just... Part of my speaking over the years, and when we when we launched the 3030 project, I did it in honor of these people because I just don't want there to be no record that they were here. They're all such great people. So um, I love I love that you started that, and also the AIDS memorial. Um, I follow that. I followed them on Instagram. I do for too. Years. Yeah, and it, and for my listeners, um. I, th I know you're right because you see these photos of all of it spans women, men, straight, gay, but these are people, these were human beings and many of them treated horribly, you know, families not wanting to go watch them die in the hospital and just, it's such a painful illness. Um, so I, I'm so grateful that you started that and that you decided to take the route of speaking. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. This time of year is the worst. I feel like I can't do anything and I can't enjoy my dinner because I can't taste my food and I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even feel like I can host this show because my voice sounds like a duck. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D, designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out. I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. I wanted to know when you came out to your town or wherever you live, were people, were people mean or were they, how did people treat you? Um, people treated me well. Okay. Um, you know, here's the thing with HIV, still probably, but really back in the day, is there's a compassion gradient. I talk about it in the book. I mean, if you're a child that's born with AIDS, you're on the top of that chart. If you're a person who, you know, you deserve a lot of compassion because you're an innocent victim, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're a woman who got a blood transfusion, you're way up there too. And then it kind of goes down the scale. And um, so my speakers bureau that, that, I, that I joined, we were, this really bothered us. Because you could tell when people were asking questions, the first thing they wanted to know from everyone was how were you infected? Because it informed them kind of like how they were going to 
care about you. Mm -hmm. And so we made this rule right after I, the Speaker's Bureau was a thing before I, I was on it. And eventually I ran that Speaker's Bureau because I worked for the health department. But anyway, um, we decided that the one question, we, if we had a panel or even if one speaker was up there, we would just say, you can ask this person anything except one question. You can't ask them how they were infected. If they choose to tell you, that's one thing. But we have found that people decide how compassionate and caring they're going to be from the answer to that question. And we believe, as a Speakers Bureau, that all people equally deserve compassion and that no one ever deserved this disease. So, you know, it's so yes, I was treated well. My brother, not as well. Yeah. I mean, even when we when we told our parents, and I didn't tell them right away because my brother wasn't ready to tell them. And um, but they waited like we did, and they didn't tell a lot of their friends. And um, you know, they were my you know, they were senior citizens at this point. And it was horrible. I can't even imagine if two of my kids came to me now and said they had a, you know, a probably fatal illness, but we can't talk about it. I mean, like, horrible. So anyway, um, my, my dad told me once that after they started telling their friends, their friends would always ask about me and never ask about my brother. And it just pissed him off so much. That breaks my heart. Isn't that awful? It's awful. So, it's awful. you know, yeah, I got treated well, but mm -hmm. not everyone did. And yet in the medical setting was probably where I got treated the worst. Because you walk into the emergency room and they make a lot of assumptions about you. If you're, you know, if you're HIV like a drug positive. user. Oh, like yeah. They look the at things. you and they're like, yeah. they assume you have no insurance. They assume you're, uh -huh. uh, you know, either. Yeah. That you're using substances, injectables. They assume that, um, yeah, they just have all sorts of assumptions. I think it's better now, but back in the day, it was hard to get care um, that was quality. So, I mean, I went in with appendicitis, and it took them 12 hours to find the surgeon who would operate on me. My appendix ruptured before they could find a surgeon. So it's, you know, and I'm guessing I'm getting bit better treatment than most people, because I work in the healthcare setting, so I know the questions to ask, and I'm kind of obnoxious to get what I need. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's it's not even out there. Let and me, you know, the thing is, is go these ahead. days, these days, the medications are amazing, mm -hmm. and they're getting better every day. Um, and if a person is diagnosed with HIV, they're expected to have a normal lifespan. If they're on medication and um, if their virus is undetectable, which when you're on a medication, almost everyone's is, they can't even pass the virus on. So really, because there's no vaccine, our hope for um, getting rid of HIV is that everybody who has it gets on medication and then you can't pass it. So that's all new and good and wonderful. What isn't different? is the stigma and discrimination around the disease. And I would say that with this last political season, it has gotten worse. I agree. Uh, not just yeah. for HIV, but for a lot of marginalized and um, mm -hmm. different communities that uh, that are often discriminated against. It's like people have been given permission to just be horrible. It's a, so, it's, I talk about it often. It's a very scary time. 
I mean, I am very open with the fact of where I stand. Um, I wasn't for a long time on the podcast, but when you're messing with, I mean, many, many of my friends are, are gay and, um, they're my family. Those are my family. So they're not my blood relatives, but they're my family. And, um, to see the, the gay community be treated the way that they are. And then what was, there was that virus that came out monkeypox. It was like, kind of like the whole thing all over again. And, the blame being thrown. And it was kind of, I was too little to ever remember what that time when AIDS was really, you know, I do remember being little and going and going, being afraid to go to a pool because it was kind of like, you weren't supposed to, we didn't know, we didn't have the information. So I understand when people are afraid because it's kind of like when COVID started, right? Everyone was like, wear a mask. I washed all my groceries. Everyone was terrified to leave their house. Exactly. COVID was a real flashback. No, it must have been. It must have been. Everybody had their opinions. It was very politicized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, wow. This is like, like, here we are again. motion version of HIV in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But what the people really need to do really honestly, like as human beings, especially if, and I'm not preaching to you, you stand politically wherever you want to stand. But what I want people to always know is, you know, these are people, these are that one, just who cares if you're gay, who cares? Like let people live their lives. How are they affecting you? This isn't something that God sent to the world to, to, to make people, to punish people for being gay. That is just not who my God is, at least. I'm very spiritual like you. Mm -hmm. Things just happen. This is part of life. It's like, you know, somebody gets sick and they die. Or I lost my dad as a kid. Like, was my dad a bad person? Why did my dad get leukemia? He was a good person. Like, was he a bad person and he was struck down? It's the same kind of thing. So, um, I think, yeah, but when someone's dying of lung cancer, yeah. your first question is how many, you know, you don't ask cigarettes. Oh, yes. Yeah, cigarettes. Yeah. What did you do to deserve that? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's unique that you take a disease and make it into a judgment point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, going to the God piece because I, I actually, um, have a huge belief in God um, but I think God made people unique and, you know, there's over 8 billion people in the world now. If God isn't big enough to have differences, like, I mean, you know, I feel like all those people are unique. And, and the one thing I have learned through having HIV for 39 years is that really the, our, our differences are our strengths. I know as people, we often surround ourselves with people who are a lot like us, but that doesn't really build a better world. It doesn't show us how to love unconditionally. There's, you know, if you just read, really, you know, I read the Bible, but I mean, almost any faith book, you know, those common denominators of love your neighbor and take care of the widow and you know, care for the poor, all that stuff, that isn't built by hanging out with people who look just like us all the time. It's built by surrounding us with people, surrounding ourselves with people who are different 
and not to preach to them, but to listen to them, mm-hmm. you know, to listen to people and to actually have some compassion and care and love. So, I mean, it's a very weird thing though, when you think about it, because why what I get confused about and like you, like, so the definition of prejudice is not understanding or bigotry is not like living. What do they say? Live or work with somebody that's different than you. And then maybe your mind will expand. Right. And maybe you'll be more open because at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all flawed. Like I talked about in the beginning, I'm heavily flawed. I shouldn't have made fun of the girl wearing jeggings, but she was very mean to me, Julie. And I, Stand by what I said. Um, and sorry if you wear je- jeggings, but I, I'm just going to move on from that. But what I want to say is we we all are are born imperfect, right? Nobody's better than anyone else like we talked about in the beginning too. And if you just would try and talk to somebody a little bit different, like we just kind of, or you just kind of touched on, maybe you'll understand instead of like living in fear of other people, like when you say the word AIDS Mm -hmm. or you say the word HIV, I mean, there's, I bet you anything, if you're listening to this and you don't understand what it is and you're afraid of it, you're walking down the street or maybe one of your neighbors or your close friends has the disease and you don't even know one of your coworkers It's just about trying to be compassionate. And so when we take it, when we bring in the political piece, I don't, what drives me crazy is hiding behind Christianity because that's not okay either. Like you can't go to church and sit in the second pew and say, oh, I'm going to church and I'm reading the Bible and I'm listening to the gospel and all these things. But yet when I walk out, I'm going to be unkind and make make somebody feel like crap because of what their identity, who they are, what color their skin is, what their sexual identity is. Right. Yeah, It's kind of the my way or the highway, you know, mm-hmm. and, I mean, that's probably an old fashioned thing no, to say, I love but that. it's, you know, I feel like, um, you can talk about that in the context of, um, especially the evangelical church, but, um, but I, I, through the 3030 project, and actually, I've been pretty privileged most of my life to travel abroad, but with 3030, I ended up in some very um, impoverished communities, and, you know, I I think about it even nationalistically, how we come in, like, oh, were they, you know, were the we're the good guys and we're going to fix all your problems, and I think what I learned through the 3030 project clearly was, you know, you go into a community and the most important thing is to listen, to listen what, um, where the, where our community's at, what they're hoped for, what they need, and how you can, you know, come alongside and just encourage that. And, you know, instead of being the great white warrior coming into these um, places. And so I think it's just... As our world gets smaller in in many ways, and and a lot of our problems are global problems, like, um, you know, water shortage, global warming, like whatever, we've got to come together, not like think we just know everything about Oh, I agree. You know what I I mean? I could could do like a three hour podcast with you about this because I don't, I don't believe in, 
I for so long didn't say what I thought and where I stood because I don't like politics. I don't like political parties. I think the whole thing's a big sham in my opinion. I, I think there's at, at the root of most people, they're good. I like to think that at least, but it's a lack of education is the issue or, you know, like look at what's happening with like our mental health crisis or addiction issues. Like this is because people are afraid and they're turning, nobody's dealing with the root of what's really going on and they're fighting back and forth over the dumbest stuff. And it all, it's all about money. I mean, that let's be real. That's what it's all about. So if more people would just like run, I mean, but everybody's afraid to run for office because nobody wants to, now it's gotten to a point where people are afraid for their lives because of what's happening. And so it's, but it's the miseducation. It's the, it's the way that people are believing something because they're holding on to beliefs that don't even really make sense. And I don't even think that people that, you know, people that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, maybe they're not horrible people, but they were, they were just listening to what they thought they were supposed to do. You know, I don't know. It's a whole thing, but I wanted you to kind of, cause I'm going off on a tangent, which I tend to do because <laughs> I really honestly think that I am, I don't know what I think I am, but I get on my soapbox a lot. But for my listeners, can you talk about what the 3030 project is? So they kind of have an idea of what that is. Sure. Um, So in 2014, it was my 30th anniversary of being HIV positive. And um, at the time, I was working with a nonprofit construction company uh, who builds infrastructure around the world for other organizations around healthcare, education, and community uh, development. And so, and then Ryan, you know, um, I don't we haven't really said this, but my son Ryan um, in 2014 was part of Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. He's the Ryan Lewis piece. And they were having a lot of success. By the way, I, I'm sorry I haven't touched on this yet, but big fan. Big fan. <laughs> I have to tell you that. I have to tell you that. <laughs> uh, anyway, they were having a lot of success, won a few Grammys, uh, had a, a great album that, that was they were writing on right then. And so my kids, actually, this was their idea, um, and they were like, Mom, we have to celebrate that you've lived 30 years. And I was like, that feels really weird because so many of my friends died. Like, celebrating seems off. But I said, if we could figure out a family project that did something good in honor of them, that I'd be up for that. And so I actually had this great idea. It's like, uh, let's raise enough money to build one healthcare facility somewhere around the world uh, where there's a high HIV incident. And um, we can raise money for that and Construction for Change, who I was working for, can go build it, right? Because uh, they have people around the world building things. And Ryan looked at me and he says, Mom, and I was like, what? He's like, I mean, you've lived 30 years. We should really build 30 of those. And I'm just looking at him like, uh... That is so many more than one, you know, but somehow he talked me into that and um, we made an Indiegogo campaign and then he made a compelling video. We ended up on um, CBS Today and Anderson Cooper and all these national shows, you know, mm-hmm. were interested in what we were doing. And and in a short amount of time, we funded five facilities, healthcare facilities in um 
in different countries around the world. And then everyone went back to their day job. <laughs> and it was just me. I would wake up in the night sweating going, what in the world did I just tell all of America I was going to go do? You know, raise money to build 30 healthcare facilities. I mean, just think about remodeling your kitchen. These are whole buildings in other countries. Oh, it was just crazy. And so... Um, so I and can I ask you something really yeah. quickly? Sorry to talk over. I tend to do that. Um, that must be like you must kind of feel like, wow, I'm a badass. Like this is a great <laughs> feeling. I'm sorry, but like let's admit that there's nothing better than knowing with with <laughs> things that you go through in life. Like I say at the end of every podcast, be happy by making other people happy. Yeah. And so selfishly, you start to go, well, I'm doing this, but like. This is a great feeling. You have to tell kind me. Kind of. In the moment, it wasn't a great feeling. I'm like a straight stressful. A student. And I. Yeah. This, was the, this was the biggest thing I've ever taken on that had the greatest chance of failing in my whole yeah. entire life. Yeah. And um, and so what? how it progressed is I'm a public speaker. So I just pretty much started speaking everywhere about how healthcare spaces could create healthcare access. And we built a small team of women. And then I, I just built this huge group of uh, mostly women supporters who were amazing. So I did not do this on my own at all. Plus CFC, Construction for Change, was just amazing. At um, They are actually managing and building these buildings. But the smartest thing we did was about two years in, uh, after we had a few buildings done, we hired someone to do measurement and evaluation. So we were actually counting the numbers of people coming into the building, how many women were getting prenatal care, how many HIV tests were being done. So we ended up with some hard data at that proved that these healthcare spaces were creating healthcare access in these areas we were building them. So the last two years, we finished funding these uh, in 2019. And the last two years, the money came in pretty quickly because we, um, well, I was getting asked to speak more and more. And also we had just this hard data to show that what we were doing was successful. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness, because then COVID hit <laughs> and no events were happening anywhere, right? Uh, poor nonprofits during that time um, trying to raise money. Uh, but um, a couple of our buildings got delayed during COVID, uh, but we are now building our last of the 30 buildings. So the 3030 project is coming to a completion even though construction for change continues, I continue raising money for them to do healthcare projects. They just aren't the the thirty thirty project. I needed a beginning and an end. I'm too old yeah. and too sick to keep going on on that, you know. But the thing is, is our book. Um, we're donating all the pro net proceeds of our book, uh, and by we, I have a co-author, Jenny Koenig, who I've known. Yeah, for tell years. tell my audience about your book too. Well, my book is, it starts with the phone call and it ends during COVID um, and it's in three sections. And oh, I'm going to finish saying what I was saying. All the proceeds are going to health organizations working on healthcare access and equity. So we're not making any money. Um, we're giving it away. Uh, the book's in three sections. The first part is those four years when we didn't tell anyone. The middle section is a lot about... Um, well, my kids growing up, uh, it's a lot about my kids. And then uh, we actually had a foster child whose mom, dad, and, and sister died of AIDS. So it's a lot about them being teenagers. It's a lot about speakers on the Speakers Bureau. Um, 
And then the third section of the book is called Too Old to Be to Die Young. <laughs> and it's more like more current. It starts when we moved to Seattle. Um, and it talks about my my adult children, Ryan, Ryan and his success in the 3030 project. And just sort of some um, I talk a lot about healthcare around the world for women, uh, with some stories. I'm a storyteller at the at the heart of it. What is the book called for my listeners? It's called Still Positive. And you can get it pretty pretty much everywhere online and then in several bookstores also. So Amazon's probably the biggest seller, even though if you want to give to a smaller bookstore, it's there too. So (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm hoping my listeners go out and grab this. What what I also wanted to ask you is current day. So where we are today. What are some of the things that you deal with? And I know, I mean, we, I hear all the time, we're close with a cure. We're close with a cure. What, where, where are you today? Well, I'm not actually, um, because I've been an author and then doing buildings. Um, I'm probably not the medical or scientist person to ask, like, what is the most current? I do take the medications and I know that the medications, um, especially for, you know, for a lot of people who are HIV positive, it's not actually in their top 10 biggest problems. Um, mm-hmm. And for those people who who might have a harder time um, adhering to medication, they're developing like shots that last a month or, you know, the medications are just getting so much more um, user friendly the side effects are way less for most people as long-term survivors. We still have the brunt of like, um, you know, we've been to think of just taking some kind of, uh, it's almost like chemotherapy for, you know, 25, 30 years. Of course, our bodies uh, have, um, we are aging faster than the average person because of just the stress we've had on our bodies. Um, mm-hmm. So long-term survivors are in a whole different category, but you know, Things are are really positive on the medical front. Um, I still hear these terrible stories of people being treated poorly in a medical setting, especially in rural areas. And I do that, too. That do really too. bothers me. Um, which which I do. I still do public speaking, and I I like to just give a little bit of education in the midst of any story I'm telling. Mm-hmm. So people just. Um, they they get a more like uh, they start to see HIV as as just another disease that people are fighting, not one to be afraid of or to judge. Um, yeah. So, did that answer your question? I've yeah. No, that was perfect. Are you are you are some of the side effects that you still deal with? Or I hate saying side effects, but um, like lack of sleep. Like, what are some of the long term issues? Well, here's the thing. I'm old, like, you know, I'm not, I mean, first of all, you look like your kids. So it is actually really hard to tell what is causing any problem. Uh Is it my high blood pressure? Is it my high cholesterol? You know, I have all these old people things I deal with. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not unlike, you know, the early days when I had more symptoms, it's like, you get up and you try to think like, you know, what are the things I learned in fifth grade health class? Like, I need to do those things. I need to Mm -hmm. exercise. I need to eat well. I need to socialize. You know, like, 
it's not brain surgery to figure out like how to take care of yourself. Um, and if you're doing all of that, if you're keeping yourself busy and um, you have a community that you care for and you're trying to eat well, um, which is hard, it's hard, you know, we're so well, busy and there's so many so bad true. options out there and I'm a coffee addict and I love sugar. But, and then if you're even just walking, I mean, I would love to say I'm going to the gym every day, but if you're just doing something, those things actually add up. Even with a, a you know, major illness, they, they are what keep you going. And then when you get sick from COVID or whatever, the healthier you are, the better chance you have of getting through that faster too. So that's yeah. my... That's my health teacher spiel right here. Well, I love the health teacher spiel. I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about this exact thing. And we were saying, I mean, I know we're not supposed to like drink wine at night or we're not supposed to eat chocolate, but it's just so good. So it's really hard. It's like, you know, yeah, all that's the things. disputable. Like yeah. a little red wine. Actually, if you watch the, like that show about blue zones where people live longer. A oh, I, people, I actually a lot have of those people are drinking red wine. I just think they drink it, you know, too much. They, well, you know, they're not over drinking it. <laughs> and well, they're the, drinking and, like a teeny tiny glass. Yeah. Or, or it's just part of, you know, th yes, they, it's part of their dinner, but, but it's not like, Oh, I'm depressed. I'm going to drink this bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which you know, I've I've been you know guilty of, but it's like, um, and then, um, oh my gosh, I lost my train of thought again. But anyway, yeah, it, I think it's just logical. Oh, chocolate, you know, dark chocolate, Choc dark chocolate, antioxidants in that big time. It's just not eating three chocolate bars, you know, or or like if you have a. Girl Scout, that's a daughter. I'm not saying this ever happened to me. Eating a box of Samoas is probably not Samoas, the healthiest. They're thing. like, they're like the crack. coconut ones. Samoas are like drugs. They, they I mean, literally, okay, I'm so, like, thank God my daughter's not a Girl Scout I'm anymore. Sorry. When I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, uh -huh. I worked at a dentist office and his wife was the district director for Girl Scouts. And our back room was their storage room for all their... Girl Scout cookies, and we just had little sign on the wall, and you could just check it off and pay later. Oh my gosh, I swear I gained fifteen pounds of my pregnancy weight from Girl Scout cookies. Like <laughs> that's like a mean thing to do to somebody. I don't know why they would do that. I remember being a Girl Scout as a kid, and my mom would put all of the our cookies, my cookies I had to sell in our freezer in our garage. And I would go out there and I would sneak them. And I've always loved the Samoas. So like Me when too, my daughter, they're my favorite. And so my daughter, my youngest was just a girl, like finished her last year. Now she's in yeah. fourth grade and she dropped out. And selfishly, I was like, thank God she dropped out of Girl Scouts because I cannot take another cookie season because then I was just eating all the Samoas and then just writing a check. I don't ever want that to happen again. I, this year, I, I ordered mine off of a freaking QR code on someone's fence when I was walking. I mean, they're so, they're so good, Julie. I can't even, I should just do a whole episode about Girl Scout cookies. They're marketing geniuses. Too, they really the honestly Scout. are. They really honestly are. I hope um, the Girl Scouts are all, all, all getting a 
big cut back from that because who knows? I mean, I love the concept of the whole thing, but I'm selfishly just so happy. My daughter is not doing it anymore because it really just turns in. I mean, I know you're a mom. It turns into work for the parent, just like everything else. Right. (laughs) Um, I am so deeply honored to meet you today. I knew from the second we connected, like when I was telling you I'm a hot mess and my computer wasn't working that I would love to be in touch with you forever. And I just, I'm really impressed by what you've done with your life and turning something that is so hard into something with purpose and helping other people. That's so huge. Um, also I'm a big fan of your son, so I need to tell you that. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners are too. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I hope that after this, you can go take a nap if you didn't sleep at all last night. Cause that's I hope where I can, I might you will see. <laughs> that's where I might be headed today. Yeah, I think Every- you might need that too. Okay. So everyone, where can my audience find you if they want to follow oh, you? Okay. Good question. Well, just on the day to day, we mostly do, Ginny and I mostly do our um, social media on Instagram and we're at um, our handle is at still positive book. Um, and we need more followers. So please I'm going to follow you right after this. And then, um, we have a website, stillpositive.com, which gives just a, a lot of history of our book and how it can be and what it's about. And then also it, there's, um, links to the 3030 project, which has its own website, 3030project.org. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, 3030project.org. Yeah. With no slash. They don't take slashes. Like in, you know, the, the logo actually has 30 slash 30, but, um, the website's just 3030. Okay. Well, I'm excited to follow you right now. And I just think you're amazing. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Everyone, in closing, um, thank you for all of your support. I'm always so appreciative. I'm j- I really feel lucky um, to be able to do what I do and to meet people like Julie. And in closing, be happy by making other people happy. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Judging Megan with Megan Judge. Thank you.